Today's te Old Testament lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why it is called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give heed to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. This is the word of God, word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Dot, thank you for reading our lesson this morning, and grace and peace to all of you in the name of Christ our Lord. It is so good to be with you on this second Sunday of October. Uh, I recognized it was 35 degrees on my back porch this morning, and I could tell the seasons were changing, and it's a great relief after the heat of the summer. Uh, there is still this spirit in the air, uh, Mary, from last night's wedding uh, that we had here with doctors Will and Allie Graham. Uh, the son of our lay leader and his new bride, who will soon be on their way to, uh, to Ireland. And it was a marvelous, marvelous service of worship last night with them. And it's so good to be with each of you. Uh, some of you who are wearing orange, I noticed had a spring in your step this morning for some reason. Uh, my team won the first half against Ole Miss, and that's all we count. And we're grateful for that. Uh, we're glad you're here, and it's a special privilege to be with the Browns, uh, to be with Madeline, Beth, and her people. We welcome each of you. It's a joy to be in worship with you. And those who are online, uh, we're glad you're here on fall break with us. Though you are in other places, you're with us, and we're grateful uh, and honored to be with you in worship today. If you're visiting with us today or you're new to Brentwood, you've caught us in the, the back end of a series on deliverance from the book of Exodus, and we're moving sequentially through uh, what our Hebrew friends call the book of Shemot, which means the book of names, but what we in the Protestant tradition, Christian tradition, call uh, the book of Exodus. The Greek is exosia, which means departure, which gives away the theme of the book. And we're in our ninth week. We have two more weeks to go, and we'll conclude on October the 23rd. Let me bring you up to date. Last week, we addressed what I think is the key event in the Old Testament in the life of the chosen people. It is the liberation of the Hebrew slaves from Egyptian bondage. And you remember from chapter 14 that these refugees, these slaves, were hemmed in, were trapped, literally trapped, between a watery chaos and enemy chariots. And in the midst of that climactic moment, Moses 
by the direction of God, lifts his staff, and the waters are parted. God makes a way where there is no way. The story in Exodus 14 then takes on a different genre in Exodus 15. In fact, it goes from prose to poetry. Exodus 15 is poetry. Sacred literature at that point becomes liturgy. And that's why we have an anthem. That's why we sing hymns. That's why we have an orchestra that plays music. It's our way of engaging in the ongoing redemptive story of the gospel according to Exodus. So we not only recite it, we not only affirm it, we not only read it and proclaim it, we sing it. In fact, the oldest lyric in the whole Old Testament is in chapter 15, verse 21, just a verse before what Dot read for us. It's the oldest lyric in the Old Testament composed by the sister of Moses and Aaron, whose name was Miriam. Apparently, Miriam has Nashville roots because she's a songwriter. And here's the oldest lyric in the book. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. That's from Miriam. The intervention of God always inspires music. I don't have to tell you because you all are Music City people. Music is the language of the soul, or as some would, would say, music is the soul of our language. Now, I would think that Exodus 15, verse 21, with the ending of that song, that poem, is a good place to finish the story. That would be a proper ending to the story, but it doesn't end there. Because there is no happily ever after, at least in chapter 15. Instead of receiving a land of milk and honey, which they've been promised, what do they get? They get the desert. The pathway between bondage and promise leads directly into the wilderness. And I'm just guessing here, but I think the length and breadth of the wilderness phase was probably quite a surprise to Israel. It's a surprise to us when we read it, especially when you realize that it took really only three days to get the Hebrews out of slavery, but it took 40 years to get the slavery out of the Hebrew people. I read the other day that the 19th Amendment was validated in 1919, and ever since then, women, you have been allowed to vote. A little bit later, after that, it was verified in Tennessee, and women were given the right to vote here, guess what, by one vote, one vote, which now you all are able to vote. All of that to say, isn't it interesting that in history, that when there's legislation, liberation, there's also a process of sanctification. It takes a while to live into that. And so it is with Israel. In fact, Mr. Wesley, the founder of the United Methodist Church, would say of this, this desert wandering, this is the wilderness state. Others call it Israel's adolescence. And it's difficult to raise a teenager. Teenagers, it's difficult to raise a parent. 
but it's unavoidable. Wilderness is a part of the journey. It's full of trials. You can't bypass it. You can't circumvent it. It's full of challenges and what we call growing pains. Now, pause it there for a moment. It's interesting to me how often the Scriptures use geography in theological ways, in metaphorical ways. For example, the mountains always symbolize what? God's presence, the fullness of of God's presence. Four chapters after what we read, in chapter 19, Moses is going to go up to the mountain called Sinai, where he will, this is interesting language, see the backside of God, which is the retro of God. We live forward, but we understand God backwards. And there on the mountaintop, he has this encounter with Yahweh, and he receives the law, the Ten Commandments, on the mountain. That's where you encounter God. That's why when the women went on retreat last week, where did they go? They went to the mountains. When you need a break, you go to the Smokies, or you go to the Blue Ridge Mountains. You go to the Rockies, where for some reason it seems the air is lighter, the climate a little cooler, and the visibility is clearer. The mountains, Psalm 121 says, I will lift mine eyes to the hills, From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord. It's theology and geography together. But the wilderness is a place of uncertainty. The desert is expansive. It's unfamiliar. It's unknown and in some cases unknowable. The wilderness is a place with no walls, no guardrails, no gatekeepers, no pharaohs. It is what I call a place in between. In between promise and fulfillment. In between Egypt and Canaan. In between. It is a place of transition. And transition is a difficult place to camp. Some of you may remember Stephen Sondheim, you know the name, who wrote a Broadway musical in 1987 called Into the Woods. They've made a movie out of it, too, that's based on a book by James Lapine. And Mr. Lapine, using tales that you've heard from the Brothers Grimm, like Little Red Riding Hood, The Three Bears, and so forth, in that story, Into the Woods, it becomes a metaphor for a dangerous and risky quest where you have no idea of the outcome or even if you will survive the journey into the woods. And the movie and the play itself characterize those times when we're trying to navigate what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. It's wilderness. It's a period of adversity, ambiguity, and deep inner turmoil. To me, when I think of wilderness, I I think of Silent Saturday. Think of the disciples between Good Friday and Easter Sunday in that transition, unsure, knowing the promise, but unsure of that which is about to come. I've mentioned this book to you before, but I think it's incredibly important, an incredibly important book by Susan Beaumont called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going. And she speaks of the wilderness season as a liminal season, a season of liminality. And that's a big word. When I went to seminary, I paid $30,000 for it, so I'm going to give it to you, (laughs) free of charge. The word liminal comes from the Latin root that means 
threshold. Literally, it's the threshold that separates one space from another. If you're an architect, architects know that the liminal space is what? It's the hallway, right? The hallway between the sanctuary and Haney Hall. It's the lobby, if you will, or the narthex. At the hospital, it's the waiting room is the liminal space. Or at the airport, it's the gate where you get your connection at the gate. And the truth is nobody wants to live in that kind of space. It's, it's unsustainable. It's an in-between place. And who in their right mind likes to live in between? But the scriptures indicate that liminal space, wilderness, is the primary venue where transformation happens. So you don't need to bypass it because that's where salvific activity happens. You say, give me, give me an example. Okay, I will. How about Noah? In the flood, 40 days, rain coming down, having no idea when it will stop, in a smelly ark without a rudder, hope just floating with all his pets and pests. He's between creation and recreation. That's liminal space. He's in between. You say, I need some more help. How about the exile? Talk about liminal space. Seventy years, these Hebrew children, these Israelites, lived outside of Judah in Babylon as refugees. And did you know that during those seven decades, they actually wrote, they recorded the Torah, the first five books in your Old Testament, because they knew when your identity as a people is threatened, you better record your faith history. It had been oral tradition up until that point, but they used that liminal space to make sure that we understood the historical record of Yahweh. Need some more? How about, how about Jesus? Right after his baptism, where the heavens were open, the dove descends, the voice declares, you're my son. What happens next? He is driven into the desert, into the wilderness, where he is tested. His identity is tested for 40 days. You cannot circumvent the wilderness. How about the Apostle Paul? After his conversion on the Damascus Road, where he had the vision of the risen Lord, he goes into Arabia for three years trying to make sense of this vision because he's in between being a Pharisee and a follower of Jesus. And I think the best example is Simon Peter. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, unsure of the next steps in a confused liminal spot, he goes back to the only thing he knows. He goes back to the lake and he throws in his line empty nets. The old life has lost its lure, and suddenly Jesus shows up in his grief and disorientation and reinvents Simon Peter. And now he's fishing for men. That's where God does God's best work. Now, I don't have to tell you that life is liminal. I will tell you, it was, I was in a liminal spot last Sunday at the Jamboree. I have a slide detailing what happened. Some of you were there. Some of you threw the ball. 
I was in the dunk tank, and it occurred to me as I sat on the ledge that life is kind of like a, a dunk tank, that, that you know it's coming, <laughs> but you don't know when. And I think what troubled me the most in this liminal space was that kids that I have baptized, <laughs> children that I have confirmed, lined up to do me in. There was one teenager in particular who came up to the bars after he nailed me there and said, Brother Davis, I just want you to know I love you and I'm sorry. But I saw absolutely no evidence of repentance because he got right back in line and did it again. I'm talking about liminal space. You know it's coming, but you don't know when, you don't know how, and you brace yourself for it. Some of you are in the dunk tank. You're in between. You're in between a job. You're, you've experienced a, a demotion, a job loss. Inflation has gotten to you. You're worried about the next paycheck. There's a financial issue. Some of you got a positive a diagnosis recently. It's malignant. You're in the dunk tank. You're in the wilderness. You're not sure about your marriage. There's a broken relationship. There's a wayward teenager. There's a death in your family or an expected death soon. And life is just liminal. But here's the good news. God is in the liminal space. In fact, it is there that trust becomes deeper. It is there that identity is confirmed. It is when your props have been taken out from under you that we discover that God's grace is indeed sufficient for our need in the liminal space. Isaiah knew it, and that's why he said in chapter 43, look, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned because I, the Lord, am in the dunk tank with you. That's where God reinvents his people. I, th I think I, I, I should say that the Christian story, the whole story of the gospel, is by design an invitation into liminality. That the hoped for reign of God which was inaugurated in the person of Jesus is here, but it's not yet complete. And so we're living in between the world and the world yet to come. It's liminal space all around. I shared this quote recently, I think, with our leadership group. It's a quote from Ed Catmull, who was co-founder of Pixar. I love this quote. There is a sweet spot between the known and the unknown where originality happens the key is to be able to linger there without panicking. Now, it's probably just me, but is there a lot of panicking going on in the world? Probably me, right? Maybe it's just me, but I, I sometimes see panic in the church, even among those of us who profess Jesus. But we don't panic because God is in the in-between. He's in the liminal space. It's in the wilderness that God makes bitter water sweet. It's in the woods 
that God rains down manna and quail into the camp. It's in the desert that God actually uses Moses to get water out of a rock. So though we are disoriented, pushed to the threshold in the dunk tank, we don't panic because even when we're unsure of the future, we know who holds the future. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul must have been studying the wilderness season. In that he was studying what we read this morning. I think he was because he writes to the Corinthians, who are also in liminal space, reinterpreting the Hebrew wandering. And this is what he says. Listen to this. I don't want you to be unaware, sisters and brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, this is the, the Red Sea, and ate the same spiritual food, quail, manna, and the same spiritual drink, water from the rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and listen, and that rock was Christ. You see what he's done? He's reinterpreted that liminal space in lieu of the lens of the gospel. The rock from which we drink is Jesus. That's the flowing fountain. Nevertheless, writes Paul, God was not pleased with most of them. So if you think you're standing, watch out that you don't fall. And here's the key part. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to every person. And God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing, he will provide a way through so that you can endure the situation. That's what he said. That word endurance means to stand your ground, means to persevere. Reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can endure all things through Christ who is my strength. It's not my power. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's through Christ who strengthens me. Last word. I mentioned that we had a leadership retreat. About a month ago, I was a part of a team. It was all in-house retreat. Sharon Cox, Laura Brantley, and I uh, shared in our leadership retreat. Much of it was about the wilderness season, uh, transition, and the difficulty of that. And our theme verse was Psalm 16, verse 8. I love this verse. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Now, that word before means that God is not just in the past. God's not behind us. God's constantly ahead of us. God's before us. The right hand of God, that's the dominant hand. How many of you are right-handed? Please raise your right hands. How many of you are left-handed? Uh, five of you. Uh, I apologize to all the southpaws, but the reality is from the scripture writer's point of view, it's the right hand that is the dominant. That's the strength. That's the powerful hand. This is why we say when Jesus ascended, he sits at the right hand of the Father. This is why when someone joins the church, we don't offer the left hand, we offer the right hand of fellowship. It's power. And then the psalmist says, 
I keep God before me. He's at my right hand. Therefore, listen to this. Therefore, I shall not be, what? Moved. And the Hebrew word for moved is, I will not panic. I will not be shaken. I will not become unglued. Or to say it in the positive, because of God's abiding presence and power, we can be steady. We can be confident. We can be at peace. The right hand. Whenever I come into the church, I always come by the hands, the iconic hands out front. I think it was Gary Pierce in 2000 who shaped these wonderful hands. And I think I got this from Bishop Spain. But whenever I enter the building, whenever I come in the building, I always stop there and I reach for God's hand. If you'll notice, the human hand is the left hand, weakness. God's hand is the right hand. And I never come in that I don't stop just to remind myself that what we do is not in our own power to touch the forefinger, the right hand of the Father. That's the strength that enables us to serve. And I'm always reminded when I do that that even in the dunk tank, God is at work reinventing restoring, recreating, renewing us for a life of mission and service so that we too can become the liturgy of God so that your life, my witness, can actually become a poem of grace for somebody else. I keep the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved even in the wilderness, even in the dunk tank, even in the desert. May it be so for you, for me, for Christ's sake.